Our sermon text this morning is found in Genesis chapter 7, verses 1 to 24, as we continue our series through these early chapters in Genesis, and indeed in all of the scriptures. Listen now once more to God's holy and inerrant word. His word indeed is more to be desired than gold, even much fine gold. His word is sweeter than honey, sweeter than the drippings of the honeycomb. Listen to it now. Then the Lord said to Noah, Go into the ark, you and all your household, for I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. Take with you seven pairs of all clean animals, the male and his mate, and a pair of the animals that are not clean, the male and his mate, and seven pairs of the birds of the heavens also, male and female, to keep their offspring alive in the face of all the earth. And in seven days I will send rain on the earth forty days, and forty nights, and every living thing that I have made, I will blot out from the face of the ground. And Noah did all that the Lord, that is Yahweh, had commanded him. Noah was six hundred years old when the flood of waters came upon the earth. And Noah and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him went into the ark to escape the waters of the flood. Of clean animals and of animals that are not clean and of birds and of everything that creeps on the ground, two and two, male and female, went into the ark with Noah as God had commanded Noah. And after seven days, the waters of the flood came upon the earth. And the six hundredth year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the seventeenth day of the month, on that day, all the fountains of the great deep burst forth, and the windows of the heavens were opened, and rain fell upon the earth forty days and forty nights. On the very same day, Noah and his sons Shem and Ham and Japheth and Noah's wife and the three wives of his sons with them entered the ark. They and every beast according to its kind and all the livestock according to their kinds and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth according to its kind and every bird according to its kind, every winged creature. They went into the ark with Noah, two and two of all flesh, in which there was the breath of life. And those that entered, male and female of all flesh, went in, as God commanded him. And the Lord, that is, and Yahweh, shut him in. The flood continued forty days on the earth, the waters increased and bore up the ark, and it rose high above the earth. 
the waters prevailed and increased greatly on the earth, and the ark floated on the face of the waters. And the waters prevailed so mightily on the earth that all the high mountains under the whole heaven were covered. The waters prevailed above the mountains, covering them fifteen cubits deep. And all flesh died that moved on the earth, birds, livestock, beasts, all swarming creatures that swarm on the earth and all mankind. Everything on the dry land, in whose nostrils was the breath of life, died. He blotted out every living thing that was on the face of the ground, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens. They were blotted out from the earth. Only Noah was left and those who were with him in the ark. And the waters prevailed on the earth. 150 days. Thus far the reading of God's word. It is absolutely true and it is given to you because your Father in heaven loves you. Let's pray. Blessed Lord, you have caused all the holy scriptures to be written for our learning. Now by your Spirit, Father, may you enable us to read Mark, learn, and even inwardly digest this portion of your word that we might hold fast to the blessed hope of everlasting life which you have given us in your Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. In these early chapters of Genesis, God is giving us the true history of the world. These stories are given to us not only that we might make individual applications to our lives, but also so that we will be made wise in the way that we contemplate the course of history. As we look back through the ages, as we consider our present moment in time today, in this 21st century after the birth of our Lord, and as we look forward, to the future and what is to come. The great flood that God sends here during the time of Noah is a vivid and striking picture of the judgment that our Lord Jesus will bring upon the world on the last day in his second coming. It is most certainly that. But the flood is also a foreshadowing of all the ways in which God will judge human wickedness and evil throughout the course of the ages. All the ages up until that last day, God is continually breaking into human history, judging the wickedness of humanity, judging evil. And the flood is the first great picture of that judgment that will take place all throughout the rest of the ages. Indeed, the scriptures are full of God doing this kind of thing. God enacting large-scale judgment against people because of their sin, because of their wickedness and evil. God judges Egypt, of course, for her wickedness by sending plagues 
and by drowning Pharaoh and his host in the Red Sea. God judges the city of Jericho and its inhabitants for their evil. He causes their walls to crumble and fall down. He enacts judgment against the wickedness of the Canaanites generally through the invasion of Israel. Later in history, God judges the sins of the northern tribes of Israel. He does it by means of the Assyrian Empire. He sends them to destroy Samaria, only to follow that judgment by then judging the wickedness and evil of Assyria by sending the Babylonians to destroy them. Babylon is then used by God to judge the sin and hard-heartedness of Judah as they destroy Jerusalem and the temple and carry off the people into exile. But then, as we read in the book of Daniel, God in turn judges the sin and wickedness and evil of Babylon by bringing down the Medes and Persians upon them and sending Judah back to the promised land. This kind of intrusive judgment of God is taking place all throughout human history. God, again and again, in in time and space, is breaking in to judge human wickedness, to bring down one nation, one city, one people, and elevate another in its place. Cities and nations and economies which seem to be strong and powerful and indestructible turn out to be hollow and rotten and ready to collapse. Empires which had no rival that ruled large swaths of the world are brought low by the hand of God as he comes. Psalm 46, the psalm that we prayed this morning, promises that these things will take place, that God will do these things. The psalmist says, the nations rage. The kingdoms totter. God utters his voice and the earth melts. Come, the psalmist says, behold the works of Yahweh. Right? Not the arbitrary movements of fate. No, the works of Yahweh. How he has brought desolations on the earth. He breaks the bow, the psalmist says. He shatters the spear. He burns the chariot with fire. God comes in judgment again and again and again all throughout the history of the world. And the flood here is a picture of what God will do. Beloved, we should not be surprised when God judges evil, even when he does it in dramatic and difficult ways. In fact, if we are to be wise... We should expect the judgment of God. If we are mature, we should long for it. We should ask him to do it. For the scriptures promise us that God ordains and rules over history in this way. And we certainly must not fall into the trap of believing that our own culture and nation, with its embrace of decadence and its approval of wickedness for some long period of time now, is somehow immune to these things, is immune to God's judgment because of our economic or military or cultural power. We must not make that mistake. 
But how should we, as the people of God, live in a world where God is doing these kinds of things, where God is constantly, regularly bringing upheaval into the world, making the kingdoms totter, making the earth melt through his judgment, a world where tomorrow is unknown to us, where we don't know the future, a world in which the future is unpredictable from our limited and human perspective in terms of its details. How should we live in this world, beloved? We should not be afraid. For God has promised us this, that though he will bring judgment, though he will judge evil, though he will break in and make the kingdoms totter, he will always preserve his people, even in the midst of the judgment that he brings on this world. And by his people, I am not referring to the United States of America. I'm referring to his church, to the kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ. Listen again to Psalm 46, where the psalmist is undoubtedly reflecting on the judgment that God has brought on the world through the great flood that he sent during Noah's time. He's thinking about this. He's thinking about the flood, and he's, he's teaching us how we are to think of God's judgments in our time. The psalmist says, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. He says, therefore, we will not fear. Though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea. Doesn't that sound like Genesis 7? Though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. You see, beloved, what the psalmist is describing here is not mere metaphor. There was literally, indeed, a time during history when the earth gave way when the mountains were literally moved into the heart of the sea, when the sea came and swallowed them up. And in that time, just as in our time, just as it will be in future time, God is the refuge and strength of his people, a very present help in trouble. And that's just what we see in our passage this morning. Our passage this morning begins with the Lord instructing Noah along with his families, um, his, sorry, his family and the animals to go into the ark, to go into that vessel of salvation, the great wooden house or box or chest that he had spent years building at the Lord's command, right? That was 450 feet long and 75 feet high. The Lord tells Noah, in seven days, he says, I will send rain on the earth 40 days and 40 nights, and every living thing that I have made I will blot out from the face of the earth. I think it's worth imagining this moment from Noah's perspective, right? You've been waiting for this day for years and years, for decades, perhaps even as long as a century, I think, probably 120 years. Long ago, God had promised to Noah that he would judge the wickedness of the world with a great flood, and now that day had come. And Noah, at this point, has no cho choice but to put himself fully into the hands of God. I mean, where are you going to go with the flood that is going to wipe out everything? 
And he hasn't had a chance to have a dry run with the ark, right? They didn't tow it down to an ocean and see if it would float. There's no opportunity to practice what's about to happen because what is about to happen has never happened before. And Noah probably has a million questions that haven't been fully answered by God. Questions like, exactly how long will we be floating in this ark? There's no indication that God told Noah that in advance. And where is the ark going to land? Where, where are we going to end up in this massive ocean you're about to turn the world into? How do we know that we won't sink or drown, right? Are we sure that we have enough food for however long it's going to be for not only me and my family, but these animals that are with me? And, and what happens, Noah might have thought, if I, ha if I didn't do it all right, right? If, if I left something, if there's a, there's a gap somewhere, you know, in this ark that I've built, but there's no alternative for Noah. He doesn't get to have all those questions answered first. Rather, in that moment, Noah must place himself and his wife and his sons and their wives and the animals directly into the hands of God. We read about this in verses 13 and following. And friends, we, we can't miss the drama of this moment. This is what faith and obedience looks like, beloved. Trusting that what God says is true, trusting that God is faithful to his promise, even when we don't know all the details of how it's going to work, how everything is going to take place. This is the kind of faith that we are called to embrace. This is the kind of obedience that we are called to embrace in a hundred different ways in our lives. Many times in small ways, but sometimes there will be times where there'll be crossroads in our lives and God will ask us to trust him. And this is what faith and obedience looks like for Noah. It means to go into the ark. On that very same day, Noah and his sons, Shem and Ham and Japheth, and Noah's wife and the three wives of his sons with them entered the ark. They and all the animals, according to their kinds, they went into the ark, verse 15 tells us, with Noah, two and two of all flesh in which there was the breath of life. And those that entered, male and female of all flesh, went in as God commanded them. And then we get to what I think is one of the most powerful phrases in all the narratives that we read in the scriptures. At the end of verse 16, after Noah and his family and the animals are commended for doing as God commanded them, the narrator comments, and Yahweh shut them in. Noah didn't close the door behind him, right? He didn't have some pulley system or something to pull it shut and seal it. The Genesis tells us that God shut the door. God closed it. Noah went into the ark, but God sealed him there. There was no going back at that point, right? Only forward into whatever future God had prepared for him and his family and indeed the human race as a whole. At this point, Noah is 
completely surrendered control to God. Or rather, God has taken away, he has stripped Noah of any control that he might once have had. He's there in the ark with his family and the animals, and there is nothing to do but wait for the rain to fall. There's no going back because God shut them in. And the effect of God shutting the door of the ark is not only that the way, of, the way out is now closed to Noah, it's also a sign of God's blessing. It's a way which God is saying, Noah, I am with you. I'm with you, Noah, as you wait in the ark for the flood to come. My presence is with you. It's impossible for me when I read that verse and indeed this passage not to think about how all of our lives, all of our years as believers, we say these words. We say, I look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. We confess that. We confessed it this morning. We confess again and again for decades that we believe in the resurrection of the body. But when the day of our death comes, we have to commit ourselves to that belief in a new way, without any reservations, because after we die, it's going to be God who is going to seal our bodies in the ground. We articulate with our mouths all our lives that we believe in the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. But in the end, we have to fully give up control. We can't hedge any bets anymore. We must, in the end, give ourselves into the hands of God completely. And in our death, God shuts us in. He closes the door. God seals us in the ground. And there we must trust that just as Noah had to trust God as he waited in the ark, that this too, our grave, like the ark, is the place where Jesus remains united to us the place where God will one day raise us from the dead. What happens after God shuts Noah into the ark is extraordinary. It's impossible even to fully understand the scale and power of what this means in physical terms, what Genesis describes. But Genesis tells us that on that day, that day that they went into the ark, all the fountains of the great deep burst forth, and the windows of the heavens were opened, and rain fell upon the earth forty days and forty nights. It seems that water came both from under the earth as well as down from the sky. It must have been overwhelming and awesome and terrifying to behold and to experience. And the waters rose and rose. They collected on the earth and rose until all the earth was covered. And, and not only the low-lying places, right? Not just the valleys and the, the coastal regions, not just the beach, but the highest mountains, Genesis tells us, were eventually covered with this water that God had brought. It's remarkable to think about, right? Imagine a mountain scene that you're familiar with where you've been before. You're looking out over those peaks and the rain is falling and falling and falling and the water rising and rising and rising until those mountains are covered. They're swallowed up. They're buried under the waves. I mean, that's overwhelming to even think about. 
It must have been terrifying to experience. As verses 21 and 22 tell us, the flood meant death for all living creatures that were outside. And all flesh died, we read, that moved on the earth. Birds, livestock, beasts, all swarming creatures that swarm on the earth, and all mankind, everything on the dry land, in whose nostrils was the breath of life, died. But the ark, Genesis tells us, and all of this chaos and all of this disorder, the ark was safe in the midst of all this destruction and death. God's flood, which brings death to all living creatures, actually has the opposite effect for the ark, even as it pushes them down and drowns them. It lifts the ark up. And the waters that bring death to those outside of it support and almost cradle the ark in the description of the narrator. As we read in verses 17 and 18, the waters increased and they bore up the ark. Do you see that? The waters are personified in that description. They are bearing the ark up. And the ark, we read, rose high above the earth. The waters prevailed and increased greatly on the earth and the ark floated on the face of the waters. That's a profound description that we read of what the Lord does for those who were inside, those who had gone, on, gone into the vessel of salvation, those who were in the place where he had sealed them and put them. The waters destroyed all those outside the ark, but as the waters rose and rose and rose, those waters actually bore the ark up They made it soar. They lifted the ark up even above the highest mountains of the earth. Those waters lifted Noah and his family and the animals up to the heavens. I mean, do you see that? They go up and up and up to the heavens. And they're held there, floating safe and sound, completely secure, completely protected, lifted up to the heavens themselves. And in this way, the ark becomes truly the temple of God, the place of God's special protection and presence where he is being faithful to his people even in the midst of the worst judgment that our world has ever seen. As we close this morning, I just want you to think about that picture, right, of the the ark being lifted up to the heavens above the mountains, being borne up by the waters, floating safely. Think of the world turned into one giant ocean. Think of those waters covering even the mountain ranges. Think of the waves. Think of the darkness as the rain falls without interruption. And think of the ark floating, being cradled and lifted up by those waters, safe 
and dry and warm and secure. Think of the waters lifting the ark up and its inhabitants up to the heavens, soaring over the mountains, being lifted up to God. Think of the ark, the only place of safety, the only place of protection. Because the ark is where God is. The ark is where God has set His people. The ark is where God has sealed them. And then hear again these words of Psalm 46. God is our refuge and strength. A very present help in trouble. Therefore we will not fear though the earth gives way though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. Yahweh of hosts is with us, is with us, friends. Emmanuel, he is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Beloved, no matter what takes place, no matter what upheavals come in the details of our lives or on the grand stage of history, no matter what judgment God might pour out on the earth in the days to come, this is the promise that He has made to us. He is our refuge and our strength. He is our help, our very present help in trouble. For the Lord of hosts is with you, friend. He is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the assurance that you are our refuge and our strength. We thank you for the story of Noah, and for this picture of the ark. Completely safe, completely protected, in the midst of devastation. Father, give us the faith that we need, the trust that you are indeed our refuge and our fortress, that you are with us forever. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.